Hello everyone! Welcome to the seventh episode of Kumusta Kumare, the monthly podcast of Napisev Bersama Sama Project Philippine Team. Hi, my name is Rochelle, a member of Napisev Philippine Team and currently engaged in research about the sex trade and tourism here in Anglo City. And I'm Emma, I'm also with Napisev Philippines, focusing my work on women workers in the south of Luzon. And I'm Mira Yusuf, the Napisev US-based staff. Quick information about Napisev, or the National Organization of Asian and Pacific Islander Ending Sexual Violence. We are a US-based organization and our mission is to end sexual violence in the Asian and Pacific Islander or API communities and build healthy communities through transformative justice and social change. Last year, I think it is last year, we started the Bersama Sama Project in the Philippines, Indonesia, and Guam in order for immigrant, refugee, settler communities from Asia and the Pacific to connect to their home countries. By building this relationship, communities will be able to both reconnect with traditional cultural practices and share movement building strategies. Kumusta Kumare is the Bersama Sama Philippines Team podcast and a way for our team to discuss issues facing women and girls in the Philippines. Inspection of any honor or off-base violations. This is merely a comprehensive vehicle inspection. If I can see your ID, open your belt compartment, your trunk, and any other concealed area. So this time, we advise you not to be accused of any honor or off-base violations. This is a military routine inspection. People, get up here. Have your bank open. Welcome to Subic Naval Base, gentlemen. I'm Chief Journalist Jim O'Leary. I'm the Assistant Public Affairs Officer for Commander U.S. Naval Forces in the Philippines, Subic Bay. What we're about to see is the largest. U.S. naval installation outside of the continent of the United States. Our primary mission here is to support units of the 7th Fleet, which operates in the Western Pacific region. At any one time, we have about 10 ships in port, including a complement of about 3,600 sailors and Marines. They're undergoing maintenance on their ships or just relaxing the rest and recreation here in the one of the best Liberty ports in the Pacific, if not in the world. You know, I have no problem at all associating with them. You'll find girls out in town whose mothers were bar girls, whose grandmothers were bar girls, and you'll find girls out in town whose fathers fought and died in the Vietnam War, well, out American fathers, and even some whose grandfathers were World War II vets. It's sort of a family uh, business that keeps going. I'm a, uh, a bar owner of sorts. Basically, the, the guy goes into the bar. There's drinks, uh, regular price for him if he wishes to buy a young lady a drink. If there is a mutual attraction or a singular attraction, however it may be, the guy can pay the girl's bar fine. Or in other words, he's paying to take her out of the bar for the night. If he falls in love with this girl and decides he wants to take her out of the bar, on a permanent basis, he pays what is called a steady bar fund. 
That can be anywhere between now uh, two and three hundred dollars, I suppose, for that. Then he can take it from there, whatever he likes to do. If he wants to get married, go back to the States, whatever, that's entirely uh, up to him. Most of the girls range in age between 17 and their late 20s. But if you were to reach your hand into a bucket and pull out a handful, you'd probably be talking between 17 and 22, 23 years old. It's wonderful. And I can be with women that are much my junior. episode, we will explore the role of the United States occupation or militarization in the sex trade in the Philippines. There had been um, several studies and documentaries on this issue, but this does not mean that this issue ended or has gotten better for the individuals who are part of the sex trade. My take on this issue is rooted in my personal stakes and transnationalism. It is personal for me because I grew up in Olongapo City in the early 1970s to early 1980s, where the sex trade was, was very much in my face. Transnationalism has been important to me as an immigrant in the United States, as I am aware of how Asian women are sexually objectified and seen as submissive and docile. What is the origin of this perception? Is there a connection between the US occupation and this perception of Asian women is there a connection between colonization and the sex trade. Napiseb's Bursama Sama project in the Philippines focuses on the sex trade in the Philippines, and this is our way of introducing our focus. This project is connected to the work that we do in the U.S. Napiseb is a project under Monsoon Asians and Pacific Islanders in Solidarity, a community-based organization that assists victims of gender-based violence in the Asian and Pacific Islander communities in Iowa. Individuals served by Monsoon has been either um, newly arrived refugees or Asian women who arrive in the U.S. under the fiancé visa. The majority of the women are married to white American men who are conservative, Republicans, and oftentimes had been in the military. How is the current manifestation of transnational marriage, formerly called male order brides, connected to the U.S. militarization or occupation in Asia and in the Pacific? Militarization is the violent manifestation of patriarchy, male privilege, connecting the incidences of sexual violence in the military to this issue, an issue that we continue to explore. It is interesting that folks who are working on this issue of sexual violence in the military fail to connect how the military's practice of rest and recreation support the sex trade outside the military bases. Rochelle? So before engaging in our projects here in the Philippines this year, I have had very little direct or inside knowledge about the sex trade and sex work here in Angeles. I mean, sure, having settled here in the city for over 20 years now, I would catch glimpses of the red light districts whenever we'd go past the area or see the crowd of freelancers and bar girls walking or riding the jeepneys and tricycles, all heading towards that direction. It is also a fairly common sight to see much older foreign men with very young girls walking in the streets, inside the malls, or eating in restaurants. In the first few years of living here, sometime in the late 90s, up until the mid-2000s, because of the regular joint military exercises conducted between the U.S. and the Philippine military under the Visiting Forces Agreement, 
the red light district and the bars were filled with American soldiers. When the American soldiers weren't around, other sex tourists from South Korea, Japan, Australia, Europe would dominate the place. In the more recent years, even when the U.S. soldiers were here, fewer and fewer soldiers were seen in the bars, apparently to minimize their public or media exposure. But instead, the sex workers were transported into the heavily guarded hotels or resorts or wherever the soldiers were staying inside Clark. Now, in my years as an advocate for workers' rights and welfare, I have had encounters with former Egozone workers who end up working in bars or are now with foreign boyfriends whom they met while working in bars. And they now send them money regularly while they're in their home countries and would serve as their regular or full-time host or partner whenever they're here in the Philippines. These women... They do hope that at some point, their foreign boyfriend would find a way to take them back to their home countries. Of course, as activists, we have had a lot of opportunities to study the colonized history of our country, as well as the socio-economic and political conditions through the years, and even the current and prevailing situation of our people. We know for a fact that a huge majority of women and girls, men and boys, members of the LGBTQI communities are engaging in sex work because of poverty and desperation. Many of those working in bars and clubs have not had the opportunity to complete their high school education, which makes it even more difficult for them to get hired, even as a factory worker inside the Clark Economic Zone, where the basic requirement is at least a high school um, diploma or certificate. It is also pretty common that the sex workers in the area are teenage mothers or were teenage mothers when they started and or sole breadwinners in their families. While they themselves know that this profession or this work will not exactly make them rich or prosperous, in fact, they are simply making ends meet even with this work, but they do have dreams that someday their lives would improve. And the one common thing you would hear from them is that this can happen by finding a partner who would help them achieve that dream. Except, of course, most of the time, unlike in many romantic dramas or movies, and as you have mentioned earlier, Mira, the experience of many Filipino women who end up marrying or becoming fiancés of these foreign men aren't exactly as they imagined it will be. When I was working with the local government, here, there were discussions on what to do about the fact that when you Google search Angela City, the first websites and photos you will find would be that of women and girls in their bikinis as workers in clubs and bars. Imagine they would talk about this technical concern, but there was really no discussion on how it is that we have a red light district, the situation of the women and girls working there, and just what is going on there. It was like something that people choose not to talk about, a topic purposefully avoided because it's just too messy and even dangerous, involving human traffickers, drug syndicates, corruption within the government, the police, etc., etc. Now, to many, especially the younger generation of our city, who weren't around when Clark was a U.S. military facility for almost 100 years, the red light district is a place that seems to have just always been there. But has it? 
What do you think, Emma? Our in-house historian. History of U.S. military and sex industrial complex in the Philippines. The mock battle of Manila Bay and then the signing of the Treaty of Paris between Spain and the United States in 1898 are two of the most traitorous events in the history of the Philippines. Both of them signified how an old revolution and an infant republic was crushed by the collusion between a dying empire, that is Spain, and the burgeoning superpower, that is the U.S. So together with Puerto Rico and Guam, the Philippines became a U.S. territory after the defeat of the Katipuneros during the Philam War in 1902, leaving 700,000 Filipinos dead. That's about 10% of the population during that period. The so-called independence from the U.S. was granted on July 4, 1946, but definitely with strings attached. Aside from the Bell Trade Act and the Parity Rights Agreement, The 1947 Military Bases Agreement and the Mutual Defense Treaty summarized the relationship between the Philippines and the U.S. Exploitative and one-sided, of course, to the advantage of the latter. Through the Military Bases Agreement and the Mutual Defense Treaty, U.S. was able to gain foothold in the Pacific by maintaining two of the American military's largest overseas bases. The United States gained rights over water, air, and land necessary to construct, maintain, and control their bases in Clark and Subic. They can even enter and inspect privately owned properties that they think can improve health and sanitation of their military bases. Subic Naval Base which was put up by the Spanish government and used from 1896 to 1898, occupied 24,415 hectares. It became the main port, training, and logistic support for the U.S. 7th Fleet. The Clark Air Base, originally called Fort Stotzenberg, occupied 63,103 hectares and served as the tactical operational U.S. Air Force installation in the entire Southeast Asian region that had the capacity to accommodate the U.S. military transport planes, which serve the entire Western Pacific. Clark and Subic also became a symbol of the Filipino women's commercialization as entertainers and hospitality girls, which are both euphemisms for prostitution. Women in the poorest regions in the country were enticed, duped, or seduced into the glamour and promise of prosperity that foreign cultures in foreign-oriented cities brought along with the U.S. bases and facilities. The history of sex trade in Olongapo Sambales and Clark Pampanga is as old as the U.S. military bases in Subic and Clark. Before the pullout of the U.S. bases, there were estimated 55,000 to 60,000 women and girls in the entertainment industry in the area. Brothels, casas, bars, nightclubs, massage parlors, liquor stores, motels and hotels filled the surrounding landscape. This is also true for commercial sex zones that develop around U.S. bases worldwide. Even during the U.S. wars of aggression in Afghanistan and Iraq, there have been multiple reports of brothels and sex trafficking involving U.S. troops and contractors. 
even in domestic military bases in the U.S. like Fort Bragg in North Carolina. Filipino women sex workers can also be found in red light districts in U- U.S. military bases abroad such as in Songtan in South Korea and Okinawa, Japan. The South Korean government's creation of the E6 or the entertainer visa has allowed Korean promoters to import Filipinas and other women on a legal basis. The E6 visa is the only Korean visa for which an HIV test is mandatory. Venereal disease tests are required every three months. Over 90% of women with the visas are estimated to work in the sex industry. Before early 2000s, the Japanese government issues overseas performing artist visa for Filipino entertainers. There have been more than half a million marriages between Asian women and male GIs since World War II, and an estimated 80% of GIs Asian American marriages end in divorce. We do not have the exact figure how many of these were Filipinas. Uh, On the other hand, there are 30,000 Amerishian children in the country, most of them unrecognized and unsupported by their American fathers. In September 1991, the Filipino people scored a huge victory against the U.S. after the Philippine Senate was forced to say no to the extension of the military bases agreement. The U.S. warships are now long gone from the shores of Subic, and their warplanes are no longer in Clark. But did they really leave? The U.S. government asked for time to clean up before they turn over Subic and Clark. But did they really clean up? After the U.S. pulled out from Clark and Subic in 1991, the Philippine government signed the Visiting Forces Agreement with the U.S. government in 1998, which transformed all 7,107 islands as a potential base for the U.S. military. Since 1992, U.S. military vessels continue to call at Philippine ports to hold joint military exercises basing on existing mutual defense treaty and for rest and recreation, shore leave for U.S. servicemen. And we know what happened to Elias Nicole and Jennifer Laude, both raped by visiting U.S. soldiers under the Visiting Forces Agreement. The U.S. bases in the Philippines are gone, but they left behind an army of deeply scarred women and children engaged in the sex trade. There the infrastructure that they built for sex trade remains and still alive. After the pullout of the U.S. bases in 1991 to 1992, because they, they asked for time before they could turn o- over Subic and Clark, mm-hmm. um, the Bases Conversion Development Act was put into law, which transformed Clark and Subic into economic uh, zones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said that the uh, women who used to work as entertainers in Olongapo in in Clark can now work. They now have opportunities to become factory workers in those eco zones. But what was not told is they will be forced to um, receive very low wages with very minimal or almost no rights as as workers. So even the conversion. Mm-hmm. of the bases did not free the prostituted women from the sex trade. Mm-hmm. Like what was I was saying um, in our previous discussions is 
the transformation or the conversion of these bases into economic zones. It just cemented the role of women that y- you, you only have two choices here. Mm-hmm. You can become an entertainer or you can become a or you can you can be a sex worker or you can work as a factory worker or you, you can work in factories receiving very low wages. So it did not really provide better choices or better opportunities for women. They were just it was just confirmed that you're only a woman. Your your choice is just sex work or become a factory worker earning very low just enough for you to survive I love it Oh my God. Yes, Emma, we couldn't agree more. Thank you so much for that. Well, what you all just heard was just the beginning of our discussion and the history of sex trade in the Philippines and the role of U.S. occupation and militarization and its systematization of the sex industry here. We will continue this conversation on this topic and more in our upcoming episodes, so watch out for it. And so, until then, see you at our next episode. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Stay safe. Thank you for listening to another episode of Komusta Kumare, a podcast by Natiseps Bersama-sama Project supported by the Noble Foundation. For more information about this episode and all of our previous episodes, please visit our website at napisev.org. Find us at Napisev on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Don't miss our upcoming episodes by hitting the subscribe button wherever you get your podcasts.